0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employee groups say the budget proposal Senate Republicans will work to pass is an insult to employees because it includes a pay freeze for the federal civilian workforce. The bills the House passed over the summer didn't mention a pay raise. That means President Trump's 1% raise would become law. GovExec reports the NDAA the House passed includes a 3% raise for uniformed military. President-elect Joe Biden's agency transition teams include a number of veterans of the Obama administration. Former leaders on the Biden team include Deputy Labor Secretaries Chris Liu and Seth Harris, former Acting Social Security Administrator Carolyn Colvin, and former Federal Chief Technology Officer Anish Chopra. Federal News Network reports former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks will lead the DOD transition team. The top civilian at the Defense Information Systems Agency will retire. Tony Montemorano has been at DISA since 1992. He joined after a 21-year Navy career. Federal News Network reports the agency scheduled a retirement ceremony December 11th. The State Department could have some big changes in store in a Biden administration, but the concept of rebuilding the State Department isn't a new idea. Corey Shockey is Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She's former Deputy Director of Policy Planning at the State Department and author of the book State of Disrepair Fixing the Culture and Practices of the State Department. Corey, welcome. It's wonderful to see you. You wrote in this book in 2012. The United States government was, and I believe still is, incapable of of whole-of-government operations because the civilian agencies, especially the Department of State, are too weak to perform the necessary functions. Has your view of that changed in the last eight years, Corey?
1: It has not changed, but I feel it even more strongly now than I did then, in part because of the damage the Trump administration has done to the culture and to the budget of the State Department. The Trump administration, every year it submitted a budget, has attempted a 30% cut to the State Department's budget, and Congress saved the department from that, but the turmoil of it uh, takes a toll on the institution, as does the first Trump Secretary of State, Secretary Tillerson, uh, cutting off any new hires, spending a year saying he was going to reorganize the department and relying almost entirely on the seventh floor rather than bringing in the expertise of america's career diplomats
0: you write extensively in your book uh, in 2012 about the type of person that the state department should attract versus the type of person that it does attract and promote as well What does that look like in 2020 and 2021 for potentially a Biden administration? What kind of person, what kind of people should that administration be looking for to attract into the State Department and to promote within the State Department, Corey?
1: That's a great question. They should be seeking to attract um, a wide diversity of Americans because we're a wide and diverse country and encouraging them to take initiative, to act independently, to spend less time reporting on what is happening in foreign countries and a lot more engagement out in the societies to represent who the United States is and to bring crucial information that governments themselves may not be providing to the United States.
0: A lot of the discussion, excuse me, Corey, please continue.
1: No, I'm sorry. I was also just gonna say that the State Department twice tried to do what the Defense Department does routinely, which is produce every four years a review of the department's operations. And they haven't done it in a Trump administration, but even the two times that they did it in the, the Obama administration, they concluded that they weren't hiring people with the skills they need, and they weren't teaching people the skills that they themselves identify as essential for the, for the conduct of American diplomacy.
0: And that was actually where I wanted to go next. Is the QDDR step one for a Biden administration at the State Department to determine a roadmap to move forward on?
1: Yeah, it's a good institutional practice for any organization to routinely review, how are we doing at What it is our responsibility to do for the country. The Defense Department does it every four years by congressional mandate. And it helps the organization to see its mission clearly, to prioritize its resources, and to make sure everyone in the organization is working to common purpose.
0: Your experience includes the National Security Council, the Defense Department, as well as State, Corey. What does the Defense Department do well that the State Department could learn from?
1: I'm so glad you asked that, because I do think it gets to this point about the cultural deficiencies of the State Department. You know, the State Department has an incredible uh, talent pool in the Foreign Service and in the Civil Service, but the organization doesn't institutionally align itself to identify what are the skills we need, who has them, how do we incentivize and reward people for the practice of them? How do we teach them what they need to know for their advancement in the organization and to perform the uh, skills at higher levels? And the, the military services spend almost all of their institutional effort doing that. And you see the difference in performance.
0: One of the things culturally that you propose to change at, at the State Department, though, goes against the grain of what we want there, which is long term. Uh, long serving foreign service officers who have great experience and institutional knowledge. How do you propose to change the culture of an organization like that without changing the people themselves?
1: Oh, through education and incentives. Organizations get the behavior they incentivize and reward. And the State Department does a very poor job of educating its people and rewarding the excellence in the ranks. Let me just give you an example. The State Department spends almost the entirety of its uh, training and education on languages. And yet most American ambassadors and senior diplomats aren't well versed enough in the language that they could debate somebody in that language on television in the country in which they're serving. So it tells us that we're expending an enormous amount of resources, but not producing the outcome that's needed. I would recommend spending less time and effort on language and allowing foreign service officers to uh, become regional experts, to serve in the same uh, country or the same post over and over so they develop deeper expertise and you can spend less of your training resources on language and more on, for example, managerial expertise.
0: Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute a lot more I'd like to cover but we're out of time thank you for joining me today thank you up next tracking the U.S. approach in the Arctic straight ahead on government matters how collaboration up north could help freeze tensions with adversaries you're watching WJLA 24 7 news Welcome back. The Arctic is China's latest theater of interest, even though its landmass doesn't come anywhere near the Arctic Circle. That region will become more strategically important as the climate changes and it becomes more accessible. Ship traffic in Arctic waters is up 128 percent, over the last 10 years, Thomas Ayers, is general counsel of the Air Force, writing about the Arctic in Space News. Mr. Ayers, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I take some comfort in uh, in the in the issue with the Arctic from the beginning of your piece. You write about the countries that have interest there: Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, and the United States. They're either us or allies. All of them, with the exception of Russia, is that a potential advantage in the work that we need to? do in the Arctic?
2: I think so. Um, We have great partnerships with those countries as you said with and even with Russia, we can work with Russia. You know, we have um, we have right now today astronauts on the International Space Station, Russia, so we can work with Russia, although certainly we work with our partners there. uh, The other seven nations you mentioned, Canada, our nearest neighbor, and then uh, the other countries Norway, Finland, Sweden, Um, Denmark, because of Greenland, of course, and um, and Iceland. So great partnerships with those nations and 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 they realize that in an era of increasing strategic competition, that's there are those who would like to uh, get to the increasing availability of the natural resources there.
0: Another country that obviously, as I mentioned, is interested in the natural resources there is China. And you point out in this piece an interesting dichotomy. You write, uh, China's published an Arctic strategy making clear the Chinese government's desire, you write, to control infrastructure along Arctic routes. You also point out in this piece that China hasn't yet completely shown its hand. What does that mean that we and the others, uh, other countries that have an interest in that part of the world should be thinking about or preparing for regarding China?
2: Yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, China, you know, it's called itself a near Arctic nation um, because they'd like to be involved in the governance of the Arctic, and um, it's not a near Arctic nation. The the more more northernmost city in China is on the same latitude as Philadelphia, um, but China, you know, they recognize um, the increasing access to trade routes, as you mentioned. Uh, in the sea, they the increasing access because of technological developments um, to the fisheries, to the rare earth materials there and to hydrocarbons, fuels. And so they're very interested in uh, establishing a presence there um, in the Arctic. And so we've just gotta be very careful because we know that China does not abide by the rule of law the way that we do, whether it's uh, bullying and theft of intellectual property whether it's their, um, their claims to a huge expanse of the, the Southern Pacific, um, you know, in contravention of international law. We know the way that China works, and we have to be vigilant.
0: One way that China works, uh, Tom, is to basically, for all intents and purposes, buy access to parts of the world where it would like to have influence. And you point out one of those in this piece. Tell me why we should be concerned about Shandong gold mining.
2: Yeah, so Canada is now considering whether or not they'll allow China to buy Shandong Gold Mining uh, Company. And so we know with China and civil military fusion that that means um, a piece of ground that China would really kind of actually own. Uh, What that would do, it would give them greater access to rare earth uh, materials and uh, minerals. It would give them greater access to um, things that are required for national defense for us. It um, also, we know, again, the way tr- China treats people, treats the environment. And so the Arctic is very fragile. And we know the United States and Canada, we know how we treat the environment. And we're very, um, y- you know, we're very careful. And that's important to the indigenous people and to the environment itself. And so uh, we have to be careful. Hopefully Canada is very careful as they're considering Um, this effort by China. I guess one other thing I would say is it would also give China a potentially a permanent presence for satellite antenna, which would increase uh, their capability um, to uh, have satellite communications uh, in in the, the Arctic, which they don't have quite as well as we do right now.
0: The issue then I suppose becomes what do we do about it? What can we do about it at this point, Tom?
2: well i think we continue to partner um with the nations that are in the arctic council that have a presence who have a vested interest in ensuring that environment remains pristine as, as much as it can that the um that it's used for the benefit of nations that are interested in the rule of law that are interested in the indigenous people there and the protection of those people um and and the, those of us who are interested in in commerce that is um cognizant of of that environment so both in the seas and then we also know that you know this is a very important for our homeland security and for power projection for the air force Uh, you know everyone else looks at the map of the world and mercator map but when you look down on the world from the arctic perspective the, the quickest routes to much of the northern hemisphere go over the arctic and so that's important for us in defense of the homeland also important for us to protect our partners and allies through power projection.
0: Thomas Ayers of the United States Air Force, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here, sir.
2: Thanks. Very real honor for me to be part of your show.
0: Up next, maintenance delays at Navy Shipyard. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's gumming up the works that the Navy didn't think about? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Navy is trying to cut maintenance delays on its ships, but the Government Accountability Office has found a few potential causes of delays the Navy might not have thought of. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at GAO. Diana, welcome. It's good to see you again. Um, I look at your work, and it strikes me that we're talking about issues that we've been talking about in the Navy for a long, long time. What exactly is the issue as the Navy thinks about moving from Uh, fleet in the upper 200s as it has today to potentially 500 plus ships in the coming decades. What's the Navy up against now regarding the maintenance of its fleet?
3: Well, first off, Francis, thank you very much. It's great to be back on the show. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Here at the GAO, we've been issuing a series of reports on challenges and problems with uh, the Navy maintenance issue. And we have found systemic problems across the board. Uh, Roughly speaking, the Navy has been late in completing its maintenance, about three-quarters of the time. That's been happening, whether it's maintenance performed here in the U.S. or maintenance overseas, whether it's done at the public shipyards or the private shipyards. The Navy is facing some significant problems. Um, The good news is they're starting to take some action and increase leadership attention to address them, but they still have a long way to go.
0: It strikes me that some of the potential problem here on the front end, that three-quarters number that you just mentioned, is because of what the Navy does or doesn't do on the back end. For example, uh, you cite acquisition of these ships, and we've talked about requirements on an ongoing basis on this program and, and with you in particular. Ineffective requirements for ship reliability and maintainability. You cite ineffective acquisition oversight of issues impacting sustainment. This is stuff that's happening at the root of the fleet prop, uh, the root of the fleet construction and not all at the end, correct?
3: That's correct. I mean, it's it's a it's a systemic problem as well. It's been going on for years that the Navy has been building ships that are that have maintenance problems baked into them from the point, from the time they're actually delivered to the Navy. And that can create a dozen create delays. It incurs additional cost. You know, we issued a report recently that found that uh, the, the Navy is facing you know, well over $100 billion of planned or a potential a maintenance cost in future years because of maintenance problems that could have been and should have been addressed when the ships were being built in the first place.
0: When you were on the program the last time talking about that work, my takeaway after I watched it uh, on the air that night was, This is an issue that the Navy knows about that the Navy has not been able to fix. There's no doubt in my mind they're trying to fix it. You alluded to the fact that they're making some progress. What has gained them the progress that they've made, and is that progress that can be scaled, Diana?
3: So, right, they have made some progress. For example, uh, one of the main factors that we identified in some of our prior work was insufficient number of, of, of workforce. So they've hired you know, several thousand more people to do the work, so that that has certainly helped. Uh, They have a plan in place to modernize its shipyards and expand the capacity so they're more dry docks, so they'll have fewer delays down the road. That helps. Uh, They're also taking a a hard look at how they actually do the maintenance of the ships and how they plan for that. And that is starting to show some early promising developments, but the, the challenge is, of course, it's taken them years to, to get to the point where they are today. It's going to take them years of sustained effort and sustained focus to get them out of the situation that they're currently facing.
0: The benefit, I suppose, that the Navy has is they have your recommendations as they attempt to scale the fleet and add these proposed 200 and some ships in the coming decades. Uh, you cite in this work, you've made 39 recommendations in the past, uh, uh, unclassified recommendations uh, the Navy agrees with uh, 37, at least partially. They've only mm-hmm. implemented six as of September of this year. What does that say in your mind about their ability? Um, is this just really hard, Diana?
3: It, Francis, yes, it is, it is really hard. There are no easy fixes here. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a very vast industrial complex that actually performs this maintenance. So adding workers, modernizing that equipment and those facilities is not something that's going to happen right away. Uh, Addressing some of the problems on the front end that are baked into the acquisition process. Those aren't changes that are going to happen overnight. Uh, We also identified some problems with simply not doing the required maintenance when ships are at sea. That's something that's going to take some time to address because the Navy, frankly, doesn't have enough crew aboard those ships. So none of these things are going to be resolved overnight and it's something that's going to have to the navy will have to continue to focus on down the road regardless of whether or not it continues to have a 290 ship navy, a 355 ship navy or 500 ships, which is part of the conversation right now.
0: When the the navy's about to get underway with the frigate program, time is of the essence I suppose to implement these recommendations in the case of new programs like that. Is that fair to say, Diana?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we think that there should be attention placed on sustainment and support from from day one you know when when the first thinking about developing and building a a system whether when they're in the process of building it and then during the life cycle you know there tends to be more focus placed on building the shiny new thing and not enough attention on supporting it and maintaining it after it's been delivered to the fleet and that's actually when it's most important you know francis if the navy was able to perform all of its maintenance on time they would have the equivalent of 15 additional ships available every year. And that's that's an important addition that enhances our national security and it's certainly something that the Navy is trying to do, um, but it's gonna take them some time to get there.
0: Diana Maurer, thank you very much. It's great to have you back on the program. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud and tune in, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Roegs. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.